Paul says in verse 9 that they're all under sin. Again, he says that they are all under the control of sin. Every person that is not born again is under the control of sin. It is a universal negative proposition from which no one is excluded. There is none righteous. There is none that does good. There is none that seeks after God. And church, before we get pious, we need to remember that that was all of us before Sovereign Grace found us. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. Bibles today to Ephesians chapter number one. Ephesians chapter number one. We above all people as Christians are certainly the most blessed indeed, aren't we? And you could say that the first blessing that is ours as believers is the blessing that we saw last week and that's the blessing of grace. Grace is that undeserved favor that that God bestows upon totally unworthy people. He's not only blessed us, church, with grace, but he's blessed us, the Bible says, with peace. And he's blessed us, the Bible says, with every spiritual blessing that's in the heavens. And as Paul begins to think about the spiritual blessings that has been given, His heart, no doubt, just bursts forth in praise as he begins to, one by one, he begins to list those things for which we are most certainly blessed. In Ephesians chapter 1, I have honor of respect for God's word. Let's please stand as we once again read our text beginning in verse number 1. Ephesians 1, verse 1, this is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather to himself in all things, in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would grant to us understanding of your word this morning. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul, really just bursting into praise, begins to list the many, many blessings that you and I have received as believers. 
And Paul states that all of the blessings that we have received are blessings that have their origination in heaven and that have their origination in the purposes and the will of a sovereign God. And the first of these blessings that Paul lists for us, we see in verse number 4, where Paul says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. All those, church, that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone do so because they are the chosen. They are the chosen. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15 and verse 16, he says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. All those persons that are born again, those are the people that have been chosen by the Father. And one of the areas of the, that the doctrine of election hits, this is the one that hits the hardest on human pride and ego. Because listen, our human pride and ego wants so desperately that we are saved because we came to faith in Christ by our own efforts. Yes, we come to faith in Christ by the sacrifice of himself on the cross. But so many believers want to so desperately believe that we accepted it because deep within the recesses of our being, deep within the recesses of who we are, there was a spark of divinity within us that made us want to choose Jesus Christ. Even though there, we believe that we come to faith in Jesus Christ by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, so many people want to desperately believe that I had a spiritual intuition there was something about me that caused me to want to choose Jesus Christ. In his book, The Work of the Holy Spirit, Octavius Winslow said this, talking about the doctrine of election, Oh, precious truth, it stains the pride of human merit. It lays the axe at the root of self. It humbles and abases. It empties and lays low in a place and ascribes all the praise honor and glory, might, majesty, and dominion of the new creation of the soul to the triune God, end quote. I, I thank folks that so many times we've been saved, some of them for so long. I mean, I'm looking over a congregation of people. Many of you have been saved 30 plus years. And many of us, Sometimes if we're not careful, we've been saved for so long, we've been in Christ for so long, that sometimes we forget how wicked we really were before we became Christians. Sometimes we forget how apart from Christ we truly were. And of all the things that that removes, of all the things that the idea that somehow we had, we had the spiritual intuition to, to want to become a Christian, of all the things that that removes, it removes the beauty and the glory of the blessings that we receive, doesn't it? R.C. Sproul said this, the good news is only good news if you understand the bad. Good news is only good news if you understand that first, there's bad news. And in the same way, church, the blessings are only truly blessings when you and I understand how very wicked we were outside of Christ, but yet he gave us those blessings anyway. That is, that is where a very important doctrine needs to come into focus. Before we ever talk about any other blessing that God gives us, the good news is only good news when you understand the bad news. And, the, and before any other blessing can be discussed, we need to understand the doctrine of total depravity. Or, the, or as a best, best biblical definition, the doctrine of total inability. Now, when we speak about the doctrine of total depravity or the doctrine of total inability, we're not saying that man is as evil as he could ever be. Because, listen, no matter how evil fallen man is, no matter how corrupt his nature is, man could always conjure up fresh evil, can he? Total depravity or total inability is the biblical belief that human life begins with all the aspects of our human nature corrupted by the effects of sin. Therefore, all of our actions lack total pure motives. Some refer, like uh, such as R.C. Sproul, refer to this doctrine as the doctrine of radical corruption. When we are conceived in the womb of our mothers, 
We are conceived in that, in that every aspect of who we are is completely isolated from any kind of spiritual virtue. That's what the psalmist meant when he wrote in Psalm chapter 51 and verse 5 where he says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David isn't saying that, isn't claiming that his conception was the product of a sinful actions on the part of his mother or his father. David is saying very clearly that when he was conceived, he was conceived a sinner. He did not become, as Pelagius said, a sinner after his first sin. No, he committed his first sin not because he was born a sinner, but David committed his first sin. You and I commit our sins because we are conceived in the womb of our mother as sinners. We are sinners not because we sin, church. We sin because we are sinners. Think about this. As David stated, that as that child forms in the womb of their mother, as that little child that begins to develop, as that little child in the womb of his mother begins to take shape and form, think about this as, as the words of David said, they are already sinners as they're forming in the womb of their mother. Because mankind, from their very conception, at the very core of who they are, is absolutely corrupt in their being. And the Apostle Paul gives probably perhaps the best thesis on the condition of, human, of humanity outside of Jesus Christ. And quoting from several Old Testament passages, I want you to look at the screen and I want you to focus on what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse number 9. Where Paul says this, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles. That kind of encompasses everybody, doesn't it? Both Jew and Gentiles, that they are what, church? All under sin. That means that whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile, all of humanity is under the bondage outside of Christ. They are under the bondage and they are under the control of Satan. Now notice what he says. As it is written, there is what? None righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, the day they found the Lord, or the, or the day they started seeking the Lord. Listen, church, the day you got saved, you didn't find the Lord. He found you because according to Paul in Romans 3.11, you were not searching for the Lord. You may have been searching for peace. You may have been searching for relief. You may have been searching for fire insurance. You may have been searching for a solution to your problem, but you were not searching for the one true and holy God who makes absolute demands upon your life. You were not searching for him. That's why Paul says there is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher or grave. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And church, before we get pious, we need to remember that that was all of us before sovereign grace found us. That's the way that we were. And when Paul says in verse 9 that they are all under sin again, he says that they are all under the control of sin. Every person that is not born again is under the control of sin. It is a universal negative proposition from which no one is excluded. There is none righteous. There is none that does good. There is none that seeks after God. I was informed just this week you know, email can be a dangerous thing sometimes, can it? You could be having a great day and then you get an email that just gets you out of sorts. But I was, I was informed this week via email. Evidently, something I said in one of my sermons, I, I, I know y'all can't imagine that somebody had something negative about what God's Word said. But something I said in response, something somebody responded to me, something I said in 
one of my sermons said to me, well, even unbelievers are not wicked. Even unbelievers can do acts of kindness. Even unbelievers can do acts of philanthropy. And many people are really quick to come along and say, yeah, you know, yeah, that's right. I know people that are not Christians, but they're, they're good people. And how many people, if you ask somebody the question, you ask them if so-and-so is a Christian, well, he's a good man. Well, he's a good girl. They're good people. Are unsaved people good people? Are, can unsaved people do acts of philanthropy? The biggest problem with that theory, folks, is this. What does the Bible say? And since the Word of God is what's given under divine inspiration, and since the Word of God is what's given by the moving of the Holy Spirit, we must take, our, we must take the Word of God over our thoughts and over the thoughts of men, don't we? Because even, church, listen, even when an unbeliever does an act of kindness, are they really doing good? No, they're not. God looks at the good deeds of an unsaved person as absolutely wicked. Look at Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, 6 says, And all of our righteousness are as what? Filthy rags. Anything that an unsaved person does that's good, God sees it as absolutely wicked because it may be a good deed as far as you and I are concerned, but it is not done for the glory of God because an unsaved person knows nothing of the glory of God, and when anything is done for something less than the glory of God, it's an evil act in the sight of God. The Bible does not describe us outside of Christ as unrighteous folks because the dross of sin somehow mixes with our goodness. The indictment against unsaved people is far more radical. In our corrupt humanity, we never can do one single thing that's good. Now, unregenerate people are capable of performing what theologians call civil virtue. They can conform to the laws of man. But they can never do anything that will conform to the law of God. When God evaluates the actions of people, He considers not only their outward deeds in and of themselves, but He also considers the motives behind those deeds. And the supreme motive should be nothing but for the love and the glory of God, which the unregenerate person is incapable of doing. And usually, the civil virtue that unsaved people do what they perform is what Jonathan Edwards called enlightened self-interest. Enlightened self-interest. What's that mean? Is that they do it to somehow better themselves, not for the glory of God. And church, listen, even when an unsaved person does something good, they're not doing it for the glory of God. They're doing it to better themselves. And so therefore, God calls what they do, even if you and I call it good, God calls it evil. Because the wicked man, the unsaved person, is absolutely wicked in their minds. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth not walk not as other Gentiles walk in the what? In the vanity of their mind. An unregenerate person has an evil heart. In Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and what? Desperately wicked who can know it. And Jesus tells us where all wickedness comes from in Mark chapter 7 and verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these things come where? From within and defile a man. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the what, church? Blindness of their hearts. All references to unsaved people. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, because that when they knew God, or they knew things about God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became what? Vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. John Calvin said this, We are so entirely controlled by the power of sin that the whole mind, the whole heart, and all of our actions are under its influence. And church, listen, because man is so radically corrupt, man is incapable of pleasing God on his own, aren't they? 
In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity or an enemy of God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed what? Doesn't speak about it doesn't speak about the will, that speaks about ability. Neither indeed can be. The unsaved person cannot, it's not that they will not, the unsaved person cannot be subject to the law of God because they're so evil. So then they that are in the flesh, again, not, not will not, what? They do not have the ability to please God. Folks, let me ask you a question. Is placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, is that something that pleases the Father? Luke chapter 15 says it is, but yet the Bible says here that an unsaved person doesn't have the ability to do anything to please God. So in and of himself, the unsaved person cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ without the divine assistance of grace. So so we say that outside of Jesus Christ, man's spiritual state is not one church of relative neutrality in which he is able either to accept or reject the gospel. But outside of Jesus Christ, they are active, listen to me, they are active haters of God, which is why, again, Paul says that their carnal mind is at enmity with God and cannot be subject to the law of God. And they can't be subject to spiritual truth, can they? In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, chapter 2, verse 14, but the natural of the unsaved man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Because why? Their foolishness to him. Neither can he know them. Not will he know them. He doesn't have the ability to know them because they're spiritually discerned. And because man is so corrupt, man outside of Christ is so fallen that the Bible says he is spiritually dead. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you hath he quickened who were what? Dead, necros, no life, no spiritual life because of your trespasses and sins. Because mankind is so dead in his nature, because he is so far apart from God in his nature, the reality is, church, that outside of grace, we have nothing in us that gives us a spiritual stimulus that would want us to make any type of move toward God. Listen, you didn't wake up one day and decide, oh, I think I want to be a Christian. Yeah, that didn't happen to you. That didn't happen to you. Well, how do you know that didn't happen to me, Pastor? Because that violates what the Scripture says happens. You didn't wake up one morning and of your own, your own, your own sovereign will, you just said, oh, I think I want to be a Christian today. Because the Bible says that you don't have the ability to do that. Because you can't be subject to God's law. The heart is corrupt, church, outside of Christ. Man's heart is corrupt. Man's heart, his nature is corrupt. Man's not only is his heart corrupt, and not only is his nature corrupt, but outside of Christ, man's desires are corrupt. And until his heart is changed by grace, he'll never come to Christ. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 44, that no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me, do what? Unless something else happens first, church, Jesus is very clear, you'll never come to the Father. That unsaved person will never come to Christ unless he is first drawn by the Father. Because man is so corrupt in his nature that unless he is drawn to salvation by the Father, he will never want a relationship with God. He will never want to repent. He will never want his deeds to be done for the glory of God. He is an enemy of God. And everything that he does is ungodly. And that is the condition of man from his very conception. From his very conception. And because of, because of the fact of our very, from our very conception, we are so evil and so wicked and so apart from God, we deserve absolutely not one blessing. I want you to notice a verse that we're reading this month in the academy is our scripture for this month. I want to give you a couple verses in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Paul says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man someone even dare to die. Okay, you get the picture? Someone Someone may die for a good person. All right, someone may die for a good person. But God commendeth his love or demonstrated his love toward us. How? While we were sinners. Christ died for us. 
And certainly one of those blessings is that we have, church, been chosen in him. I want you to understand this morning, church, that before you came to Jesus Christ, you were an absolute violation to the law of God. From your very conception, from the very time that you were conceived in the womb of your mother, you were an enemy of the cross. And in fact, outside of Christ, you are so wicked in your flesh that if given the opportunity, you would walk up to the sinless Son of God hanging on the cross and you would spit in His face. That's how wicked you and I are outside of Jesus Christ. We are so wicked from our very conception that we would, we would stand with the mob in Jerusalem and say, crucify Him, crucify Him. Because outside of Jesus Christ, we are totally depraved and we are totally unable to choose God and come to Christ. That's a pretty good picture, isn't it? How many of you, how many of you think that before you came to Jesus Christ, you're a pretty good person? You say, well, even if I thought it, I'm afraid to raise my hand now, right? And I think, just like I said before, church, I think that sometimes, and, and for sake of time, we didn't even be able to touch the Scratch the surface of how evil the Bible says we are. But you get the picture. You get the idea. Because the good news is not good news, for folks, unless you first know the bad news. And the bad news is that outside of Jesus Christ, you are totally unable to come to Christ. You are totally corrupt. You are totally depraved. Every portion of your being, your emotions, your will, your intellect has been affected and touched by the sin nature. And so therefore, everything you do is sinful and wrong. But for me, understanding that about myself, being reminded about that about myself before I came to Christ, that makes the blessings that are found in the heavenly places all the more wonderful because I realize that, listen, church, listen, Kevin, what does the Bible say? The Bible says how wicked I am, but yet what did Jesus Christ do for me? Verse 4 in Ephesians 1, what did he do? He chose me. He chose me. I was vile. I was a hater of God. I was God's enemy. But yet He chose me. My heart was deceitful. But yet He chose me. I hated God. But yet He chose me. I hated God's law. But yet He chose me. And, we've, and we started last week looking at the blessings of the restorer. And we started by looking at the fact that he chose us, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, verse 4, according as he hath what? Chosen us. And this blessing of being chosen is for an ultimate reason. The ultimate reason of us being chosen, church, is not for heaven, is it? If the ultimate reason for you being chosen was for heaven, then the moment you got saved, God would have taken you on to heaven. That was not the reason. Because if that was, if that was the only reason was for us to go to heaven, then, man, these trials we go through are, are, uh, are pretty cruel realities, aren't they? If that was the only reason for us being chosen. What was the reason of us being chosen? Look at verse 4 again. That we should be what? holy and without blame before him. Paul says, here's an example. Here's an example of the spiritual blessings that we've received. He chose us for salvation. As wicked as we were, he chose us for salvation before the foundation of the world. Why? To be holy. The word holy is hagios. And it literally means to be dedicated or consecrated to the service of God, to be sacred. I was chosen to be holy. I was chosen to be dedicated to Christ. I was chosen to be used of Him. Listen, church, what a blessing that God took this man with a corrupt, sinful nature that hated Him before the foundation of the world, chose him. Why? To be representative of him and to be holy. We understand this morning that we are unworthy of being chosen. 
We are, we are unworthy of being made holy. But this was and has always been God's determined plan, hasn't it? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, look what Paul says. That he might present it to himself a glorious church. What type of church? Glorious church, not having what? Spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that it should be holy and without blemish. And Paul, of course, here is talking about our position. He's not talking about our practice. We know that in our living, we are far, we are far removed sometimes from anything that is holy, aren't we? We're far removed from anything that is good in the things that we actually do. But we understand that Paul is here talking about our position in Christ. That because he chose us, he chose us to be holy. He chose us to be sanctified positionally. What a blessing. Our practice, though, always seems to fall short, doesn't it? But positionally in Christ, we never fall short because we are holy and we are blameless because our position before God is in Christ. What a blessing. God's plan for you that are believers this morning and for every person that will ever confess faith in Jesus Christ, God's plan from eternity past was to call a people by name for His for praise and worship of Him throughout all eternity. You see, folks, God didn't save you to take you to heaven. God saved you to praise and worship Him for, your day, for all eternity. That was the purpose of your salvation. That was the purpose of you being chosen. Not for, not for a mansion in heaven, but to praise and honor and glorify Him, to live in wonder, love, and praise for Him throughout all eternity. The salvation that we were chosen was to be holy. Look at verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the, I like this, adoption of children. By who? Not by your will. Not by your will. But by, your, by, by Jesus Christ. I was predestined unto the adoption of children. And adoption here, folks, is not language of sanctification, but it is language that speaks about salvation. Yes, I was chosen to be solely and before Him blameless, but I was predestined to be adopted. Wow. Keep in mind what I said to you in the introduction about the condition of man, right? Keep that in mind. How evil were you? Pastor James, how evil are you outside of Christ? You're worse than that. In fact, you're worse than most. And so am I. But what did God do, church? He blessed us with grace. He blessed us with peace. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He chose us in Him. When? Before the foundation of the world. He didn't chose me because he looked down through the corridors of time and saw that at one point in time I would choose him, therefore he chose me. No, he chose me before the foundation of the world, before I'd ever had a chance to do anything right or wrong. He says of Jacob over Esau in Romans 9, that the twins, before they were ever born or before they had done anything good or evil, God chose them. Why? According to election. God chose us not based upon who we are. God chose us not based upon what we would do, but God, God chose us, God predestined us unto the immutable, sovereign decree of His own will. That's it. That's it. And He did it before the foundation of the world. Remember what Spurgeon said. God had to choose me before the foundation of the world because He certainly wouldn't have chosen me after I got here. If he didn't like what he saw before the foundation of the world, he certainly wouldn't like what he sees now. So he had to choose me before the foundation of the world. What Paul is teaching us is that God chose us to be holy and without blame, but he also adopted us. Look at verse 26 again of Ephesians 5. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the what? 
by the Word. You know that's how you're sanctified this morning is by the Word of God? You're sanctified by the Word of God. You're made holy by the Word of God. That He might, again, verse 27, that He might present it to Himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Paul says, this is the purpose of you being chosen. This is the purpose of you being elect. Was to be holy. So that the day would come that he would present you before God. Holy. Folks, I don't know about you, and I don't know if I'm doing a crummy job of relaying this to you, but I don't know about you, but th- that excites me that, listen, because I, I know who I am. And I know who I was before Christ and God before the foundation of the world, before I was ever known in the mind of man, I was known in the mind of God and God by name, Michael Huffman, put me in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world in order for one day to present me before God holy. That's why the Bible teaches very clearly that if we are in Christ, we don't remain unholy people, but we become progressively more holy. Because that's the purpose of our salvation. That God would present to himself, that Jesus would present to himself. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine in eternity Jesus Christ Approaching then the throne of God with every believer who'd ever claimed them, who'd ever trusted Jesus Christ walking behind him and say, Father, you gave to me a love gift and I want to give them back to you. Did you get that? Before eternity, eternity passed, Father, you chose a people as a love gift for me. I don't know about you, but I'm not very lovable sometimes. My wife will tell you that. I'm not very lovable. I'm cuddly, but I'm not very lovable sometimes. But God gave to Jesus Christ me as a love gift. Drew, can you imagine? God gave you to Jesus Christ as a love gift. Jesus, can you imagine? Just think about how evil you are. And the father looks at the son in eternity past and says, Son, I love you so much. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a bunch of sinners. Ooh, thanks. Right? But what are those sinners going to do? He says, I'm not going to just give you a bunch of sinners. I'm going to give you a bunch of sinners that I'm going to sanctify so that one day you will march up to the throne, up to my throne with, the, with those people walking behind you and that you will present them back to me. Not the same way that I gave them to you, but you're going to give them to me holy and blameless. Man, if I don't light your fire, your wood's wet. What a blessing. What a blessing. It is for this purpose that we've been chosen so that we would be holy. So that throughout all of eternity, God would have a people that would honor and glorify Him. Verse 5 again. Having predestinated us, under the adoption of children. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. I like this concept of adoption, don't you? The concept of adoption is that in the, in the Roman world, when somebody would adopt a child, that adopted child had all the rights and had all the privileges of the biological children. Listen, church, you're saved this morning. You've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's blessing enough. The Bible says you've been adopted. You're not just a group of people that God says, okay, I'm going to let you on into heaven. I, I, I just love this. I just love this. 
Because this adds such a newer, this adds such a grander dimension to the blessing. That the father just doesn't say, well, you know, Drew stands before the Lord. Well, there he is. Drew. Yep, there you are. Drew. Yeah. I see the blood of Jesus. Come on in. And then as Drew walked by, it will be long eternity. <laughs> I don't mean to pick on you, brother, but that's why you sit in the front row almost. Isn't it? Because the same could be said about all of us. The same could be said about all of us. But the wonderful blessing, church, is that's not what the Father does. The Father welcomes us with open arms, not as an alien redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but He receives us with open arms as people who are His children. And so the Father will not look at Drew and say, yeah, okay, well, come on in. I see the blood of Jesus. The father will look at Drew and say, my son, come on home. My son, my adopted son, who has all the rights and all the privileges of the divine family. I don't understand grace. I don't get it. You know, Logan sang about the Father never turning us away. Every day of my life, every day of my life, I give God ample reason to turn me away. But He said, I give to them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. In love, he predestined us. The love that sets sinners free. The love that, that breaks our shackles. The love that frees us from sin. The love that says, I'm not only going to heaven, but the love that says, I am a son or a daughter of God. I'm not a stranger that, that is just being welcomed into the master's house. I am part of the master's family because I've been adopted. Charles Wesley had it right, didn't he? When he wrote... Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, should die for me? Long, he said, my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening or a life-giving ray I woke, and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose. I went forth and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be? that you, my God, should die for me. And that same love has always been a source of immeasurable joy for the believer. And that is why there's been thousands of volumes written concerning the love of God. And even with the thousands of volumes written about the love of God, the love of God is a subject that's unfathomable to the human mind. Listen, when you and I, when we talk about the doctrines of election and predestination and God's choosing a, a people to himself, 
We're sometimes so quick to focus on the fact of Romans 9, chapter 3, verse 13, where it says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I what? And if we're not careful, we spend so much of the time focusing on the fact that Esau I hated. And that's not fair. That's not just. That's not, that's not justice, God. What did I tell you last week? You don't want fairness, church, because fairness would send you all to hell. That's what fairness would do. That's what justice would do. And the Bible never claims that it's fair. But we're so tempted to spend so much time on Esau I hated, but where we really need to focus, church, is not on, not on Esau I hated, but what we really need to focus on and what is a, and what is a phrase of immense incomprehensibility is Jacob I loved. It is not the fact that there are those people that God passes over, but the fact is that God saves anyone. Because all of us are equally as evil. Because the punishment that sinners receive from God is certainly a just punishment. And those sinners that receive grace, those sinners that receive peace, it's a source of incomprehensible love and grace. Look at verse 5 again. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. The Bible says predestinated us. Prognosco. To foreordain. To elect. To choose. To determine beforehand. Paul says that God from all eternity predetermined or foreordained a people to himself to be holy, to be adopted. He foreordained before the foundation of the world that I would become a son of God before I ever committed my first act of rebellion. The Father pre-chose me and accepted me in the family. I am made a son of God, not because of my works or not because of my worth. I am made a son of God because of His worth and because of the Father's determination. We're more than friends. We're more than friends to the Father. We are His children. God takes undeserving rebels, rebels that are deserving of eternal hell and punishment, and He draws them in into the intimacy of His own family. And you know, I love what Jesus says in John chapter 14 when He talks about, in my Father's house are many mansions. Listen, I want you to get this picture. And those of you who went through the Gospel of John with us a long time ago for a long time, um, we, when we got to chapter 14, it's a beautiful imagery there. When we get to heaven, listen... Your house is not going to be down Hallelujah Boulevard and take a left at Joyous Square and there you are at 1501 Joyous Square. No, not only are you invited as a sinner, as a rebel sinner, into the intimacy of the family of God, but you and I will spend all eternity living in the house of God. What a blessing. No wonder Paul begins his epistle by just bursting out in praise. That we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, talking about intimacy, talking about being personal. Notice what he says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you have received the spirit of what? Because I am in the family of God, I can call God my dad. That's what the old Arabic word Abba means. It's not at all irreverent for you to refer to God as your, literally as your papa, as your dad. What a blessing. What a blessing. We've been adopted. We've been adopted. And because we've been adopted, we have access to all the spiritual riches that Jesus has access to. In Roman law, when a person was adopted, 
He had all the rights of, of the legitimate son in his new family. And law, get this, in Roman law, he absolutely lost all rights of his own family. And in the eye of the law, he was a new person. Guess what? When Paul penned the word adoption, he would have had the Roman law in mind. And what is Paul saying? He says, listen, church, this is the blessing. When you are adopted, not only are you part of the family of God, but your old life is gone. Did you get that, church? You're a new person. Just like Roman law considered this person a completely new person, when you are adopted into the family of God, you, your old life is gone. You are a new person. All the debts, all the obligations that were connected with what you used to be have been abolished as if they've never existed. That's what happened when a person was adopted. And when you and I are adopted into the family of God, all of our old debts, all of our old sinful obligations are gone as if they never existed. And when did all this happen? Before the foundation of the world. You see, you and I weren't a postscript to the divine plan. Oops, Adam blew it. Let me figure out something new here. No, this was the plan of God throughout all eternity that he would choose unto himself a people, that he would present to himself holy and blameless, and that he would adopt them into his family. I love what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And I love what Lamentations chapter 3 verse 23 says, talking about the mercies of God. They are what, church? They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And every morning that you wake up, everything is constantly being made new as if they never existed. Why did God do this? Verse 5 of Ephesians 1. Look what he said. Why did God do all this? Because he saw some spark of divinity in you? Because he saw some spark of goodness in you? Because you know what? I just got to have that dude in heaven. No. Why did God do that? Verse 5. According to what? The good pleasure of what? Nothing to do with you. You are predestined to be adopted. Why? Because of the pleasure of His will. God never makes determinations based upon the actions of His creatures. That's why the Bible says, again, I quoted you a few moments ago, that's why the Bible says of Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, that the boys had not yet been born nor have done anything good of evil, that the what? Purpose of God, according to what? Election might stand. It had nothing to do with them, but it had to do with the purpose of God, according to what he determined. So when God chooses what he chooses, it's not, based, it's not determined based on the actions of people, but on him that calls. In other words, it's God's choice. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, that it is not of him that wills. It's not of him that runs, but it's of who? God that shows mercy. When God chose a people for himself, determined to adopt them as his own children, he was motivated by love alone. Therefore, I'm not the determination of just God's, uh, of anything. I'm the determination of everything, but uh, including God's supreme delight. Supreme delight. You say, well, this makes you ponder the question. Who are the elect? Who are the ones that have been pre who are the ones that have been predestined to adoption? Well, Charles Spurgeon answered the question this way: God did not create the elect with a giant E on their back, so we don't have any way of knowing. We don't have any way of knowing. But the best answer is this, given from Jesus Christ himself in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father does what? Giveth me. When did that giving happen? Before the foundation of the world. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Listen, church, every person that comes to Jesus Christ will find Jesus to be a perfect Savior. He will turn away no one that comes to him. 
The wrong view of election is to say, well, God, you want to come to Christ and God holds you in the arm and he said, no, you can't come, you're not one of the elect. That is an unbiblical view of election because everyone that comes will find Jesus a perfect Savior. The ground of the cross is level, church. It's level. Anyone can come and anyone who comes will be accepted. And all this took place before the foundation of the world for this purpose. Look at verse 6 of Ephesians 1. Why did all this happen? To the praise of His glorious grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the beloved. Why did He choose me to be a son? To the praise of His grace. Why did He choose you to be a son or daughter of God? Because of the, because of the praise of His glorious grace. Look, notice what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. I love this. He said, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God doesn't reluctantly bring you to heaven. It's his pleasure to do it. As evil as you are, as evil as you were outside of Christ, it's his pleasure to give you the kingdom. It, God delights in saving a people. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father chose, the Father predestinated his people before the foundation of the world in order that no human being would ever glory or boast in himself, but that all the glory would go to God. Verse 6 of Ephesians 1 said, All this was done to the praise of the glory of his grace. Salvation is not partly for the praise and the glory of man and partly for the praise and the glory of God. Salvation is accomplished by God creating the plan of redemption and then man finding somehow willingness in himself to believe and accept it. That's not the way salvation works. Salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. The writer of Hebrews calls salvation, calls, our, calls Jesus Christ the author and what? Finisher of our faith. From the beginning to the end. He is the finisher of our faith. That's why the Bible says in Luke chapter 5, verse 15, rather verse 7. Listen, folks. God's not waiting for 10,000 people to get saved to start the party, is he? If one person repents, Jesus said in Luke 15, 7, that there's joy in heaven. You understand this morning that God is under no obligation to save. God is under no obligation to extend grace and mercy. But He extends it. And He saves anyone who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm already on blessed overload. To look at these verses and not just to read them, but to break them apart and read them in context and see the tremendous blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. For the believer, for you and I as, as Christians, it should be a humbling thing. It should listen, if if the doctrine of election ever makes you arrogant, you don't understand the doctrine of election, you have a clue what the doctrine of election is all about if it makes you arrogant. Because the doctrine of election humbles the true elect all the blessings that we've received in Christ. Meaning that none of those blessings are mine because of me. They're mine because of Him. They have nothing to do with my goodness, but they are totally the work of sovereign grace. And folks, we're only at the beginning stages of what God's done for His people from eternity past. What He has ordained for us. What a blessing that we've seen and what blessings that we're going to see. <laughs> Tremendous stuff that God has done for His people. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. 
For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.